Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Welcome to the Crop Watch Podcast. I'm Michael Sindelari, Cropping Systems Extension Educator. For today's Crop Watch Podcast, we'll be talking about corn seedling diseases. I'll be joined again by Dr. Tamara Jackson Zims. We already know from the previous podcast your experience and your qualifications. So how about we just dive right into the meat of the subject? What are we looking for for corn seedling diseases this year? Well, there, there's a number of seedling diseases that can affect corn, much like soybean, albeit we don't currently have a Phytophthora species that we're concerned about in corn. And so that leaves us Pythium, Fusarium, and Rhizoctonia. And I think in recent years, we have had some seedling disease activity probably because of the wet conditions that we've seen in the last two or three spring seasons. And the most common sealing disease so far has been Pythium. And so I would warn people that if we have wet conditions, especially if they're cooler, that might be something that we could see again in 2019. What are we looking for, for how these diseases may impact our corn? Is this similar to what we were discussing about with soybeans where you start looking for skips where maybe something didn't germinate? Sure. You know, there's a broad diversity of types of symptoms caused by any of these seedling diseases. Unfortunately, a lot of them look very similar to each other, but in general, uh, they can affect seedlings and seed both before germination and before emergence and after emergence. And so the earliest things that you might notice might be skips in the stand in the field. And you may have have individual plants that are missing, or you may have uh, clumps, small areas in the field that are affected. Above ground, the first thing you might notice are stunted plants. They may be discolored or yellowed. You might have some lesions near the soil line. Uh, if you see skips, though, you might need to pull out the spade or the shovel and do a little bit of digging to investigate what's going on to see if actually, you know, there, if there was or wasn't a seed dropped in that location, or maybe there is a seed down there and it's having trouble germinating or it's rotted in the soil, which is very common. Uh, most of these pathogens also cause some degree of root rotting, and so you may see lesion development or discoloration and, and rotting on those roots, even on the mesocotyl as it begins to emerge too. And so there's there's a number of different symptoms that you might find. And I, I, I don't think I would expect anyone to feel comfortable differentiating between these diseases based on the symptoms that they find in the field. I'm not either. And so I would recommend if uh, these are a, a real consistent problem for you, you can always get a diagnosis from the UNL Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic, sending a sample there to find out for sure. What can we do to help out the diagnostic lab? Because we, we, we talked about this from the last one, so this may be an important thing. What can we do sample-wise, preparation-wise, or documentation-wise, or all the above to help out the plant diagnostic lab? I'm so glad you asked because 
the quality of the diagnosis that you get is largely dependent on the information that you provide to help us and the quality of the plant sample too. And especially in the case with these seedlings, they're, they're very tender and fragile and they melt down very quickly. And in the field, the difference between getting a good quality sample with fresh symptoms and a plant that's completely dead and crispy may be a matter of one day. And so collecting that sample very carefully, you know, not ripping up out of the ground, trying to carefully dig it up so you get more of that root material, that actually helps uh, the diagnostician, Kyle Broderick, and all of us looking at those samples. It helps us because we have more plant tissue to work with. And so I would try to carefully knock off additional soil if you can, but know if there's any rotting on there, those, those roots attached to that are probably going to break off. And these plant samples should be placed in plastic bags. And that surprises people a lot because we use paper bags so often for nutrient analysis, but plastic bags ensure that the plants stay fresher longer until they reach the diagnostic clinic. And that's for the entire season for uh, disease samples. Plastic bags are the way to go. And so I would, I would definitely recommend uh, submitting a diversity of symptoms, you know, ones that are just beginning to show symptoms, healthy plants. And if you can, find a, find a continuation of those symptoms, a continuum, uh, all the way down to some of the dead plants. Uh, in general, we don't recommend dead plants, but if, if we have an idea of what some of those symptoms are, it helps us narrow down the options of what might have caused it. What I'm getting from this, and you can correct me, is it's good to uh, include in our samples plants that are showing the symptoms that are still alive, healthy plants, to, so that way the person who's looking at them knows what healthy looks like in your field versus what mm -hmm. unhealthy looks like, and then you, you place in the dead plant. But if you only have the dead plant, that's not going to help a lot. It's right. more important to have that plant that's not quite dead showing symptoms exactly uh dead plants are uh wrought with other problems they have other microorganisms that have already infected and invaded them and they outcompete some of the pathogens that we're trying to find in that plant tissue the second thing i would recommend too is to carefully describe the distribution of symptoms and let the diagnostician know if those symptoms are single plants or are they in uh, just low wet areas, are they on higher, drier knobs out in the field? That's very helpful. In addition to describing distribution in the field, we usually try to describe what's going on on the specific plant themselves. And so are the leaves affected? Is it just the roots that you found or the entire plant? Maybe the newer plant growth is outgrowing the problem. And what the timeline might be. Did these symptoms show up very suddenly or maybe after a rainfall event that we may have experienced? Some of those will also be very helpful in coming to a diagnosis. That's all good information. So your field notes are just as important as your samples when trying to get the diagnostic. Absolutely. Moving on, we talked about some of our diseases. What can we do to reduce the risk of the diseases or manage through these diseases? You know, I, I think in general, all of us, all of our producers do everything they can to reduce stress on the crop. Uh, one of the things that's becoming more and more difficult when we have 
weather conditions that are not favorable. It, you know, and we've got a lot of acres to get across and get planted. A lot of time we, times we push the envelope, so to speak, and try to get out as early as we can to get started so that we can hurry up and finish, knowing that our yield potential depends on our planting date. But it, it is critical for a seedling disease to try to avoid, like we talked about, cool, wet conditions. That's, that's important to us to some extent. Much of that I know you can't help, especially heavy rainfall events after planting. Uh, anything you can do for that in that case might help. If you have a chronically wet area of the field, if there's anything you might be able to do to impact or improve drainage, that can also be helpful, but it's not practical for everyone either. And some of the literature, it even said sometimes even tillage might have been helpful, but that's definitely not practical for everyone either. And so you'll have to weigh the benefits of uh, some of those some of those recommendations. Are there any treatments uh, in the early season that could help us or is that money better spent later? Well, the good news is almost all of our seed corn is already treated with a diverse package of fungicides. And if you start looking closely at that label, you'll notice often three or four different seed treatment fungicide active ingredients that are on there. And they're normally from a diverse group of fungicide classes, which is important, like we talked about in the soybean podcast, that we have a lot of different types of fungi and fungal-like organisms that can infect. And it takes different types or classes of fungicides to most effectively control those. You'll also see on there sometimes, usually we have an insecticide seed treatment as well. And now sometimes we also have a seed treatment nematicide. We've got a lot of things already on there to protect that seed. So the producer does not always have the choice or opportunity to make decisions about which ones are put on that seed. That's done for you upstream uh, in an upstream event uh, before you ever uh, see that seed. And so that's really good news. And so planting date, you know, becomes an option for us to intervene in that plant health. We don't see later applications uh, doing much good. So foliar applications are not going to help with seedling diseases. There is more and more interest right now though in in furrow fungicide applications at planting. And although many of us are doing work on that right now, we don't have conclusive data to tell us whether the infrared fungicides are going to help us reliably impact seedling diseases and plant health. And so we'll continue to do that work, but uh, just know that some of the active ingredients have a lot of potential to provide some protection, but we've, we've not been able to consistently show the benefits of it and economics. And so uh, those are a couple other things I would consider. So we've talked about, or briefly talked about Pythium, Rhizoctonia, and fusarium. Is there anything important about these three uh, diseases or fungal diseases or any issues that they may bring about later in the year? That's a good question. I, I think it's important for everyone to understand that not all of the plants that are infected by these seedling pathogens will die. Some of them will survive, but you uh, you might notice that these plants may be the ones that are less thrifty. They, they might be stunted for the rest of the season or discolored behind the normal crop. 
It's also important to know that uh, some of the pathogens, especially those caused by fusarium, for instance, can also cause stalk rot diseases and sometimes even ear rot diseases too. And so those plants that may have been infected early, if they don't die, those might be the ones that you see die later in the season and may even cause some of the crown rot diseases that we see, which is actually a phase of stalk rot. People have been asking more and more about these plants that have died suddenly late in the season. What's caused by fusarium and in, in the spring is often when some of those are infected. Is it similar to soybeans with corn that trying to remove as much of any hardship on the plant as possible, trying to avoid herbicide damage or injury early in the season is important to avoiding a disease. And that's also probably why when you're talking about fusarium that because it puts pressure and stress on the plant that it causes issues and opens itself, it's more vulnerable to disease later on in the year. Absolutely, whatever we can do to, to reduce that stress. Um, some of it's out of our control like ponding, but if you have a herbicide, for instance, that may damage or ding your soybeans or corn, we, we know now some of that may predispose them to other diseases like some seedling diseases. So I would keep that in mind and uh, sharing the distribution of those symptoms with a diagnostician when you submit samples also helps us determine if herbicide may have played a role in that as well as the timing. Thank you for sharing that with us today, Tamara. Absolutely. I appreciate being on here. Have a great growing season. You too.